Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to Girl on Fire podcast on the Believe Network, New York's number one podcast network for personal growth. This is your host, Kirsten Franklin. Hey guys, on this week's episode, we have with us someone who's going to talk to us about the superfoods that kill. Now, while she is not an entrepreneur, I think this fits in nicely with the fact that obviously we have to take care of our health. And as you know, I've had some entrepreneurs on here who have talked about healthy eating, healthy lifestyles, and most definitely on this episode, we are going to have a very different opinion. So please welcome to the show someone who is a consultant, writer, educator, speaker, right? She has over 30 years of health promotion and wellness experience. She does have a master's of public health from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and she has a nutrition degree from Cornell University. So again, we're not talking about a medical doctor here. However, uh, we are talking about somebody who obviously has been in the health and wellness field for a long time and being in public health. And she's going to talk to us about her own experiences, her own learnings and understanding and what this did for her. So I'm really excited to hear someone who might have a different opinion (laughs) as to what would be considered healthy for us to eat. All right, guys, welcome to the show, Sally K. Norton. Sally, welcome. Thank you. I am super excited to have you here. As you know, we've had past episodes with those who have gone vegan and vegetarian and all of this good stuff. And it was really interesting to meet you and hear, you know, what you have to say and the science behind it that backs it up about what's really in some of these vegetables. So I have a question for you. Tell me a little bit about your background and how you even got into nutrition. I've been interested in nutrition since elementary school. And that's probably because I had some illnesses as a little kid where I couldn't go into the swimming pool because I had ear issues or strep throat. So I was a goody two shoes generally and thought, you know, in seventh grade, the cool thing is I had the science teacher who showed us a film strip, which is something they used to do in the seventies. People don't know what that is. <laughs> I remember those. <laughs> Yeah, the film strip said that if you ate hot dogs and stuff, you'd get cancer. And if you ate broccoli and stuff, you wouldn't. And I'm like, well, if everybody knew how to eat and you didn't have to get cancer or heart disease, wouldn't we want to do that? So I decided right then and there that I wanted to get a degree in nutrition and help people avoid getting sick. And that's amazing because that's exactly what you've been doing. Um, Not many of us can say our 12-year-old dream comes to fruition, huh? So you're definitely (laughs) meant I made several decisions at that age that I have stuck with. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) So now this was interesting to me because, you know, obviously the title of this episode is the superfoods that kill. And we are quite literally talking about the vegetables that we potentially force our kids to eat, force ourselves to eat. Tell me a little bit about what that means. Like why are certain vegetables dangerous? And let's get into a little bit of that. Yeah, and it's it's the it's a little broader than our concept of vegetables, although that concept has been changing. Do you know if you go into Walmart, you can buy chocolate covered almonds in the produce department? Yes, I eat, I eat them. <laughs> yeah, so that's another quote vegetable that we're talking about: the almonds uh, and potatoes and spinach. The plants 
especially seeds, plants have to defend themselves from predation by, you know, funguses and insects and rabbits and humans and so on. Like, you know, right. deer go through and wipe out your garden. Right, right, right. Plants are like, no, you can't keep doing that deer. So they put out toxins to protect themselves. And even the ones we've domesticated and put in the produce department, which the whole produce department is basically human domestication of wild plants, which have been radically changed to be sweeter and less toxic. Yeah. Right. So, but there's still that leftover toxic nature of plants that we're not really acknowledging anymore. All right. And so, so essentially what we're saying is the natural, you know, sort of defense mechanism for plants creates some, some kind of toxin or or some kind of chemical, let's put it that way. And I'm going to put it that way for a reason, because I want to ask you this question. So what is the difference between the chemicals that could be toxic? Well, I understand the difference. Let me ask it this way. How do we know (laughs) when a plant is using its defense mechanisms, like what makes it toxic in the sense of, okay, a vegetable is going to do this thing or, 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 you know, whatever, an almond, a nut, whatever is going to do this thing. And it's going to create this toxin. And yet sometimes we take these same quote toxins and derive like maybe a medicine out of them. So like, how do we, like, what would be the difference? Right? You would think like, oh, because we're being marketed to, and we'll get into that about all the fruits and vegetables and our stupid little triangle that we all know is no good anymore. Right. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, but how do we, how do we, it's almost like, how can we rely on the science that says, hey, this is good, this is bad. Hey, we're going to use this in, you know, uh, cancer treatment versus, you know, you can't have that because it's going to cause cancer, right? Like, I mean, I guess it's just so much. Like, what do we do with all this information? How do we decipher it? And, and how would we know just the average? Yeah. So I think you're, you're bringing up lots of different points. And um, there's several things in there to tease out. One of them is we have currently going on this theory that phytonutrients, which is a global term that is plant chemicals, plants make tens of thousands of chemicals. They're little chemical factories. That's their form of intelligence. That's their form of communication and brilliance. So actually in toxicology, that's the professional field of what's toxic and hurts you. Most people with degrees in toxicology work for pharmaceutical companies because the whole point of medicines, you said some things can be medicine and good for us. Well, medicines are basically toxins and the toxicologists have to figure out how much of a toxin and for how long you can take to get the body to respond in a way that's a healing reaction, right? Uh So all medicines, herbal or synthetic, are meant to kind of slightly poison us a little bit to get the body to respond with healing. It's not because they're healing for us. The all healing and health is created by your own biology. Makes perfect sense. I love that. Okay. So then we say, oh, look at all these benefits of phytonutrients, you know, and this is really interesting if you actually read the literature and you see there's a tremendous amount of debate and some people screaming in their articles like you guys are crazy if you think curcumin does anything good for anybody like nobody hears that side because that doesn't market products so the minute a bunch of researchers who have their own biases and have their professional reasons for pushing their point of view heavily come out with studies that look so conclusive like oh this phytonutrient or this superfood is so great for you the media and and people who make money through supplements and so on jump on that and use that benefit 
theory, unproven idea that it might be useful and say, oh, it is useful and you must buy this product to be healthy. And so we jump on that because we have our own ulterior motives that we don't even admit to ourselves. And this, have you ever heard of Cale Newport? He's an interesting author. He talks about the benefits only mindset of social media and people get sick on overdosing on social media and overemphasize the value of it in his view. And he feels that we have a benefits only mindset. Well, we certainly have that about vegetables and produce and phytonutrients. Oh my God, that, this is, I freaking love you on this show right now. This is so eye-opening. Like, and it makes, I've never, I never thought about the fact that plants basically trigger, right, our like immune defense response because, right, just like, just like a vaccine, just like anything else, right? That's what we do, right? Like I, I didn't, I never thought of it like that. I never understood that until just now. That is so eye-opening. Yeah. And it makes so much sense then in, in even more so than what you're saying, right? And I love that you got into the marketing because, you know, uh, one of my startups, Salubrity, is in the health and wellness field. And I have been sort of peripherally involved in it. I was a lifeguard. I was a personal fitness trainer, aerobics instructor, you know, back in, shall I say, the 90s. Um, and and so <laughs> I have seen the evolution of this because you have to remember when I was younger, like it was the supplements, right? Oh, if you take these, you're going to be like a freaking pill is going to make me healthier. Like I never understood that, but I sat back and I could see the marketing and I can see how it scaled and it's a multi-billion dollar industry now. Right. And, 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 you know, the other day I tried the mushroom coffee and then, I, but I always think I, this is what I always think and tell me if I'm crazy or weird, but I always think to myself, well, okay. So some local person who ate or did, or had this thing was like, yeah, look at what it did for me. But then all of a sudden, how does it go from that to, oh, I can mass produce this in 52 countries and da, da, da. I'm like, okay, something's wrong with it. It's no longer the thing anymore because you did something to it. Like you had to mass produce it. You had to pluck it, you know, make it in a, an enclosed fire. You had to do something that's no longer the thing. Yeah. And, and it's not just the like, okay, we have to turn this into a convenience for the consumer. It's also leaping over the idea that medicinal effects are short-term in nature. So most herbal remedies were purgative in nature in the old days of herbalism. So you take it for five to 10 days in order to get yourself to puke or have diarrhea to like get rid of the, the sickness, like to purge. But this idea that there's benefits that you would gain if you took it every day is borrowing from nutrition where there's certain nutrients you need to consume frequently in order to maintain your tissues that's not the same thing as how herbs and medicines work. But now, even in big pharma, they want us to take a statin every day as if long-term daily use of toxins is going to be good for us. And that's a real stretch, but it's easy to pull the wool out over the eyes of the public because the public trusts that people with science backgrounds know what they're doing. And very few people, I always tell young people, you go to college, make sure you take at least biology and maybe even some anatomy and physiology. Like you should know that you are. I took that. <laughs> I almost failed. <laughs> physiology? No, biology. I was like, I was like yeah, I want to be a doctor. Okay. No. <laughs> biology can be tough. It, you need a good teacher because they cover a lot. There's biology is life itself it's a magical subject but when you get down to knowing phylums and kingdoms and what plants do it's really complicated <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, so this is awesome. So here that I wanna go, like, let's move on to the next because obviously we love this information, eye-opening, but here's the reality then that all plants have a defense mechanism. So at some level, no matter what you eat, if you eat it en masse, it's going to be at some level toxic to you, no? Well, it depends on which toxins you can, you're built to handle and whether you're exceeding your body's ability to cope. Mm. And like there's the, the toxin that I'm focused on is called oxalate. Okay. And oxalate has its particular characteristics. It makes it especially problematic as we eat it every day and we're eating it beyond our capacity. And it's, it's, it's because it becomes a, a deposition disease, which means it creates little deposits in your body and starts building up in your tissues, oh like your thyroid gland and your bones and your bone marrow and your joints Did and you your thyroid. Thyroid. Yeah. Something something like if you're over 50, by the time you've been eating potatoes and spinach and these foods that are high in this oxalate oxalic acid, it's also called, if you've been eating spinach and potatoes and peanuts and chocolate and turmeric and certain foods that are high in oxalic acid, it's building up, especially in glands. And the small studies suggest that 85% of us have oxalate crystals forming in our thyroid glands by the time we're 50, it starts in childhood, but the longer we live, the longer we eat the way we eat now, the more likely you're going to have detectable deposits. Most of these deposits are nano in scale Mm -hmm. and can even, even manifest as little lipids. So they're very hard to detect in pathology and pathologists aren't trained to detect it. It's the specialty that's not done. When a person takes a piece of tissue out of your thyroid gland or your kidneys or your skin or your bones, and they send it to the lab for analysis and investigation. They use microscopes and all this stuff. And they're looking for deformed cells that suggest malignancy, which is cancer, but they don't by standard look for these crystals so that you will never really find the crystals and tissues because nobody knows to look for them and nobody's trained to do it, even though it's a known thing. And they've been looking at these crystals and tissues for 150 years, but it's just not cool yet in science and medicine. I don't know why. Wow. That's really interesting because there's probably no money in it. (laughs) Yeah. Because you can't treat this with chemo and radiation and long-term expensive care that insurance recognizes. It's a nutritional disorder. It comes from eating the wrong foods and it has a nutritional solution that does need a little supplement sometimes to support the recovery. And there's not, medicine is it's got their hands tied behind their back with this illness. They can't really do much about it. So it's not interesting. So they don't go there much. When there's no solution. And when like half the world's economy is based on a market like sugar, right? Mm -hmm. You You don't stop it. You just create more addicts. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And interestingly enough, sugar at a certain level that we're eating, it is a toxin, right? It's fine in, in small doses, you know, ate an apple every day, you can get away with that. That's beautiful. But living on pop tarts and cornflakes and pizza and pasta and hidden sugars too. all the stuff that like my daughter and I were trying to cut out sugar and we started reading the labels. We lasted seven days because there's not, first of all, I don't really cook. So that was one thing like that. The ordering of vegetables to have vegetables to the house was really interesting. But when we read the labels on everything, even your bread, 
So they must put sugar in bread to make it shelf stable in some way to last longer or something or softer or something. They, they also use it to, to get the yeast going. They do a very short fermentation, which is problematic because bread should be long fermented kind of sourdough long, but for industrial bread, you have to get this thing done in an hour or so. And you know, you're running, you're rushing the product through and you're doing non-traditional methods. So you use sugar to juice those yeasts. See, and cause we read everything, everything. And even the things, you know, go to Whole Foods. If you really understand what those like words mean and you Google them, cause we had to Google a lot it's actually sugar. It's like there's 80 million different words for sugar. Maltodextrin, dextrose, all kinds of stuff. It was crazy. So now of course the big question is, is since you're specifically talking about oxalates, which plants, fruits, vegetables, whatever have them. Yeah. So nuts are pretty high. Almonds being the worst almonds and peanuts in the nut department peanuts are technically a legume, but we call them nuts. So almonds and peanuts are the worst. Cashews are pretty bad too. So those, the problem is almonds are super popular now. Everybody's going to plant milks and they love almond milk, which is not a good thing. There's been a couple of reports in the medical literature about how parents giving their kids almond milk has damaged the children's kidneys severely. Wow. Okay. Okay. And that's surprising really, because Almond milk is mostly water. <laughs> it's only a very small bit of almonds in it. And they put a bunch of other glues and fillers and fluffers and calcium, you know, add stuff in so they can make claims on the label, just as much calcium as milk or more calcium than milk, you know, but the chalky calcium they actually add to plant milks tends to settle in the bottom of the container. So if you're not viciously shaking it and making sure you eat all the sediment in the bottom of the container, you're probably not even consuming quite a bit of that. Wow. Uh, Yeah. And now what kind of leafy greens are we talking about? There's just really four of them and three of them are sort of commonly used. Spinach is the is sort of the poster child, but even worse than spinach is beet greens. And another form of beet greens is called Swiss chard. It's basically beets without the beet. So those are the three worst ones. And then there's sorrel, which is technically even higher. I think maybe not, it's somewhere in between spinach and, and Swiss chard. Sorrel is sort of not done much by most people, so it's not too big a deal. But if you go to a fancy restaurant, they'll serve you a little sorrel sauce swirled under your steak or something because <laughs> it's so shishi, you know. But it, people, one guy actually died on sorrel soup. Sorrel used to be used for like the traditional borscht because it's so sour. Mm-hmm. And it's known in many other countries other than the US, and it's common there. But in the US, we don't eat a lot of sorrel. But it's really just those three greens, the Swiss chard beet greens spinach. Those are the main problem greens. Other greens are mostly from the cabbage family, like arugula, and they are not very high. Even kale is not very high in oxalate. Okay. So at moderation, it's all good. Well, the other vegetables, you know, you need to cook cabbage family vegetables. If you eat too many of them, they make you really gassy, like beans make you gassy. And so you got to moderate. You can't have a giant pile of cabbage family vegetables and really feel good on it because you're likely to feel kind of yucky bloated. It's hard on your digestion. So other foods that higher oxalate include black beans and the white beans used to make Boston baked beans. Uh, they're really high and they, beans also have lectins in them. And if you don't high pressure cook your beans and make sure they're really cooked and soaked, just soak them for like three days and then pressure cook them to kill the lectins. The lectins can mess up your digestion, which increases the amount of oxalic acid that your, gets into your blood. 
It, mm. It's the oxalic acid getting into your bloodstream that's really toxic. Now it's interacting with your blood cells and your vascular system. It goes into the liver immediately and stresses out the liver, can lead to things like chemical sensitivity and other liver issues. It, then it goes from the liver to your heart. And the heart is immediately exposed to all the oxalate in your spinach salads, your spinach smoothies, your spinach omelets, your frittata, whatever you're doing with your spinach and other high oxalate foods. Then it goes from your heart to your lungs because the blood has to pick up oxygen next. So the blood gets sent to the lungs, you pick up oxygen. Therefore, the oxalate is going in the blood into the lung tissue. And then it comes back to the other side of the heart and then it gets pumped through the whole body. And eventually the kidneys pick it up and try to excrete it. Most of the oxalate will come out of the body through the kidneys and the kidneys can get in trouble and you can end up with kidney stones, irritable bladder, nighttime frequency, like, you know, problems with your urinary tract are pretty common with too much oxalate in the diet. Okay. So I was actually going to ask that what other symptoms might you know, a high level or too high level for your body of oxalate, you know, demonstrate. It can really irritate nerves. So you can get into sleep problems and mood issues because you get neuroinflammation and lead to other kind of nerve related symptoms, even poor coordination. Like if you're suddenly dropping stuff a lot and being klutzy, it could be that you're having a time where the blood levels of oxalate are pretty high, which tend to occur about five hours after a meal. So this is one reason it's really a problem with sleep is because you might eat a dinner. Sweet potatoes are really high in oxalate too. And I used to eat them for breakfast most days and include them with many dinners. And I like Swiss chard my whole life. I was raised growing it. And uh, so a dinner for me with a little lump of Swiss chard and a chunk of sweet potato, by the time I got to bed, I would be belching and hiccuping. The hiccup mm. is a neurotoxic symptom. And this is really serious. Like the, the nerves that are innervating the diaphragm, so the diaphragm starts having spasms. So twitching, spasms, stuff like that. So hiccup in the medical literature, a hiccup is one of the last symptoms that you see when either a person or a rat is dying from oxalate poisoning. So I was really sick because <laughs> I was eating Swiss chard too much and eating sweet potatoes way too much. So that those nerve symptoms, you, are, you can get headaches, you can get fatigue, you get arthritis. I had a lot of arthritis through my 20s. I could barely open the door as a 19-year-old. I had so much inflammation because my diet was so healthy. <laughs> I was a vegetarian then and then turned vegan. So I did 16 years of vegetarianism and you know, eight of them vegetarian, eight of them vegan. And that was horrible for my health. Well, I did this thing where it we're basically, we kind of cut out everything and really all we ate was potatoes, sweet potatoes, not white potatoes, but like um, sweet potatoes and they're not, they're super, like yams, I guess. I don't know what the heck. Anyway, and, and we would do a green drink in the morning, right? And my daughter did this with me and she hated it. So she quit because she just was like not having that. I actually didn't mind it, but I found like my hair would fall out. Like my hair just started falling out and you would think that because of the amount of iron and the spinach green drink in the morning, cause it was tons of spinach that like, I would be okay. And I also had almost like an arthritic symptom in my right hand and I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. And like, I was thinking, well, maybe something's leaving my body, but maybe something wasn't like, maybe it was the fact that here I am someone who doesn't eat 
like I don't eat anything that you're talking about really. So, <laughs> but, but I do eat a lot of potatoes, but, um, you know, all of a sudden I'm, that's enough actually potatoes. Yeah. It's enough oxalate and potatoes. If you're eating them every day, it could be a problem. Yeah. And so, so I, I was doing this whole like spinach drink and things like that. And so I wonder if that's what happened because I stopped doing that. My hair stopped falling out at that level and I, my, my hand doesn't hurt. So I was just like, did you put it together? Because a lot of us aren't smart enough to like realize that the symptom and the healthy food were connected. We're so convinced that that stuff is healthy that we think it's something else. No, I did. Um, so I, I'm weird though. I used to be a medical malpractice defense attorney. So I'm kind of like, like I'm super geeked out on all science. So I didn't necessarily put it together with the spinach. I kind of, and I talked to the people at the, the facility, I was kind of thinking like, well, yes, well, maybe I'm cutting something out that I shouldn't have. Right. I didn't, I didn't put together that this green drink, you know, once or twice a day could be doing it. I was thinking that because you had me cut out everything else, that maybe there was something that I was taking in that was beneficial, that maybe like we weren't understanding, right? I didn't, I didn't think that, you know, so that was really interesting. Like, I bet you that was it. Like, I'm, you know. Yep. Let me ask you this. So then what do we do? Obviously there are limited types of foods that have these. We can obviously eliminate them, keep them in moderation. Um, But how, is there any test that we can take one, is there any test that we can take that we can understand what like a healthy level for us is? And two, you know, notwithstanding any test, you know, what would be the advice moving forward? What could we do? What should we do? Yeah, even if there were tests, which there are not actually good tests. And the reason there's not good tests is because the urine is the expected excretion route for oxalates. So we expect to catch it in the urine when it's really high. The thing is the body doesn't like oxalate hanging around. So you'd have to take that test four or five hours after a meal to catch that high wave of oxalate. The rest of the time, the body kind of holds onto it, gets it out of the bloodstream because it's so toxic to the blood and the vascular system. You don't want to hurt the heart, which it can happen because oxalate chelates or grabs minerals and lowers the calcium and mineral levels in the blood. Therefore, the heart goes into arrhythmias and problems. So the body doesn't leave oxalate in the blood, but that, that mineral deficiency that it creates does affect the hair follicles as the toxicity too. So we see this hair falling out, by the way, when you quit eating oxalates, oxalate levels go up in the blood because these deposits in your joints, your hand, for example, or your scalp or your thyroid gland start getting released back into the blood. So it goes up high as if you just ate a meal of oxalate. And so you get these same symptoms of hair loss and fatigue and aches and pains when you go off the oxalates, because now your body's purging and that process takes 10 years. So what, what we do know about testing for oxalate is it's very hard in a tissue sample to see the crystals even if you can find someone who's willing to do the test, which they're not. In the urine, the oxalate comes out in these little pulses that the body's controlling. So you have to catch it at the right time. And usually we do a first morning urine for a test. And that's the worst time to find oxalate. So mostly you're going to get false negatives with urine testing. You can do an organic acid test. And if it shows high, then yes, this is high. And that's a real result. But if it shows no, it just might be what we call sampling error. And you just didn't catch it because it's coming out in idiosyncratic ways based on circadian rhythms and other really complicated things the body does in order to manage its homeostasis. 
Okay. And then what can we do? What can we do? Like, what would be the recommendation for eating our kids, myself? Like, what, what could we do to make sure that while we might not be able to test for it or understand it, knowing that it's out there, you know, what's the middle path that we're supposed to be taking? Well, you need to step back and think about your dietary history. If you've had this big thing with potatoes or sweet potatoes or almonds or chocolate or turmeric or spinach, then you may be dealing with a body load of oxalate. And when you go off of it too abruptly, the body will sometimes suddenly purge. And that could be really toxic because the, the last thing you want is your blood filling up with oxalate. So you need to step back and think, do I have this history of high oxalate? And when you start removing these foods or reducing the quantities of them, the spinach smoothies, the, the potato, whatever, you need to kind of do it one piece at a time. So buckwheat is another, some people might be doing buckwheat, almonds, and spinach every day as part of their standard health diet. So get rid of some of these high foods, but don't necessarily do hundred percent. Like keep the chocolate in your diet, keep a little bit of almond milk here and there, keep a little bit of potato in small quantities around so that you're not jumping off a cliff and sending a very strong signal to the body, time to clean up. We don't want a, an abrupt cleanup process. So the first thing you do is learn the food. You can learn that from my website. I've got a beginner's guide there and you can see which ones you need to start replacing with low oxalate foods and start having cabbage family vegetables instead of whatever. So then, you know, you need to, to watch to see if you've got a little bit of things going on. Sometimes people get a sudden rash when they change their diet and that's a sign that the immune system is engaging and starting to clean up oxalate. Um, so yeah, yeah, learn some of the basics, like, Ooh, which are the high foods and, and then start transitioning and, and then really cut them out, like get away from them and don't fight with your kids about eating these foods. They, I think naturally human beings were repelled by high oxalate foods sort of, and they preferred to go hunting rather than shelling almonds or whatever, which isn't, isn't a human behavior. That's more of a squirrel like behavior and eating spinach is more of a rabbit like behavior. Human behavior is to go take down a woolly mammoth or, you know, something like we did that for several million years. Like, okay. So a couple million years reading woolly mammoth and all of a sudden meat's bad for you and spinach is good for you. So we've suddenly become rabbits and squirrels instead of hunters in our minds. So there's a whole mindset shift, right? Because all around us is eat more vegetables. They're the answer to everything. And really what they're the answer to is getting off junk food. Mm. Like fill up your diet with these filling fibrous things in flavors and colors so you can unplug from Doritos, which is not really the smartest approach. Right. Okay. Awesome. I love it. And so you mentioned your website and that is sallyknorton.com. That's just S-A-L-L-Y, the letter K. Norton, N-O-R-T-O-N dot C-O-M. And we will put your links to Instagram and Facebook and Twitter just so that people have it in our, in our description. Um, but any last kind of parting thoughts that you'd like to leave the listeners with? Well, I'd say growing up and thinking for yourself and not falling for all this hype about vegetables and superfoods and so on is really wise idea. We don't realize how heavily we're being marketed, even by a friendly little social post about how this smoothie saved somebody's life. Like, 
So we need to step back and think in a bigger way. And I think for me, the real revelation was recognizing ancestral health, like the really deep history of humanity and gives you a groundwork for like detecting modern nonsense. So it might save you from unnecessary arguments with your family uh, or just give you a sense of confidence that you won't die if you cut out spinach. Like spinach is not a required food. (laughs) It's okay to live without spinach. All right. I love it. Well, Sally, thank you so much for your time. It's been eye-opening. I hope everybody enjoys it. And please go to sallyknorton.com and learn more. Thank you so much. Thank you for your interest. It's been fun. So that is it for this week. Thank you for joining me. And I hope that you enjoyed today's show. If so, don't forget to rate it. If you guys have a pressing question, feel free to tweet me at CS Thrive or on Instagram at Thrive Tribe. 3.14159. Again, I know that's a weird one. It's just pi. So it's three, it's thrive underscore tribe underscore 3.14159. Or of course you can join me in Facebook at my free group, which is Thrive Tribe Global. If you just search groups and you enter in Thrive Tribe Global, you should see us there and you can join it for free. I answer your questions in there, but if you guys send me a question through there, I will be sure to answer it here on this podcast. And as always, if you're ever interested in advertising on the show, please contact the Believe Network at Believe, B-L-E-A-V, at Believe.com. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.